I really wish that I could be there in person. I had a terrific time this morning talking with uh, with Jen at the Democracy Works podcast and um, also joining professor, professor Eshelman's class. In fact, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but uh, being around young journalism students reminded me um, a little bit about why I love this job so much and why I was so uh, interested in going into the profession uh, as a very young person. I started when I was 20 and 21 years old. Uh, I think most people dream when they're young of either making a difference, making it big, or being wandering bards. And uh, for me, journalism uh, allowed you, I thought, to do two of the three. Uh, it was a job that uh, promised that it would pay you something, not very much, to go around the world and just tell people about the interesting things that you saw. And as an added bonus, if you did the job correctly, uh, it was an important public service. And both of those things were very attractive to me as a young person. And I've now been in the job for 30 years. And unfortunately, some of the things that I was so attracted to when I first entered the profession have changed quite dramatically. And that's, that's what I wanna talk about today. Um, we live, I don't think this is a secret to anybody, we live now in a time of incredible political division in America. I think most people uh, have had the experience uh, recently, in the last few years especially, um, of not even being able to have an argument with, with people uh, because once you enter an argument, you will find that you're not even debating the same commonly accepted set of facts and this has a lot to do with changes in the structure of the business of the news media. In my lifetime, in the course of the 30 years I spent in this job, uh, the core commercial strategy of the news media has changed uh, dramatically. And specifically, we've gone, uh, especially at the national news media or international news media level, we've shifted from trying to go after one big audience to instead looking at multiple smaller audiences and trying to capture and dominate those. Uh, and this has essentially led us to going from trying to sell a very broad product that appealed to everybody and that every, allowed everybody to speak the same language uh, and to instead going to a format where we're essentially selling division. And people have to understand that in addition to being a public service, the news is a business. So we, it is a consumer product and we are selling something. And this has uh, dramatically affected the way that Americans think and talk about each other. So to understand how, how this works, I think the easiest way is to go back to the very beginning of the modern news era. Uh, ironically, uh, before the advent of modern technology and mass, the printing press, mass national newspapers and broadcast media, we had a system that was actually closer to what we have now that was more atomized, but with the advent of newspapers and radio in the 20s, uh, we shifted to something, to something new. In 1929, the first national news uh, radio broadcast was conducted by Lowell Thomas, who would become a, an iconic figure in the news media. Most people, whether they know it or not, have actually heard Thomas's voice. If you've ever seen those old World War II newsreels, it's usually Lowell Thomas's voice in the background. Uh, he became very famous as a newsreader, and he, uh, his national news radio program on CBS became instantly extremely popular, and, and uh, Thomas, who had a theatrical background and who had done one-man performances, 
uh, instantly realized that there was an enormous commercial potential in what he was doing uh, because he was getting all this mail and he was understanding how the audience was reacting to him. And this is a quote from, that he said uh, many years later. He said, I discovered quickly that my evening program was a perfect way to make listeners angry. You could step on millions of toes at the same time. And just by talking about politics and uh, current events, he understood that people naturally got very agitated and he wanted to take advantage of that. In fact, he was so excited about this that he just uh, thought about publishing a book that he wanted to call Making Millions Angry. But the sponsors of CBS's radio program uh, really hated that approach. In fact, one of his main sponsors and one of the main sponsors of the show, which is a magazine called the Literary Digest, uh, ordered him to uh, avoid that approach entirely and to instead, quote, play things down the middle. His book publisher, uh, Funk and Wagnalls, did not like the title, Making Millions Angry, and instead ordered him to do a different title that was much less uh, agitating and, and much less colorful. They ordered him to call it just fan mail. Uh, and Thomas agreed, uh, and he committed to decades of doing a radio program with this down-the-middle instruction. And he became famous for his newsreels, which announced from the opening that they were seeking the widest possible audience. Uh, he always began by saying, good morning or good evening, everybody. Uh, today, we'd probably call this the uh, objective style of uh, news delivery. And it's important to understand that this was not about ethics. This was a commercial strategy. CBS and all the other news companies that came after it, they understood that the game was about attracting the largest possible audience and the advertisers uh, had to be able to court that audience. And their thinking was that once you started injecting political opinions into the news, it would uh, naturally shrink the number of people who would be receptive to that advertising. So they cut out the politicizing, they cut out the slant, and this uh, would become the template for news for about 50 years. Uh, news anchors from Lowell Thomas through people like uh, Dan Rather and Jessica Savage, uh, decades later, they learned to deliver the news in a monotonal, reserved voice, print journalism, uh, which is the business I went into, the standard format was to write in an even, unemotional, detached, third-person voice. Uh, you can still see vestiges of that style in some major daily newspapers, although it is shifting rather dramatically in the direction of more colorful blogger-style writing now. But for about half a century, the standard was unemotional, detached, even delivery. But beginning in the 80s and the early 90s, which was uh, coincidentally about the time that I started entering the news. Uh, incidentally, I come from a family of journalists. My father was a television reporter uh, and had been in the business since he was um, 18 years old. So I grew up in the news media. And even before I entered the job, I had watched some of these changes happening. And in the 80s and 90s, there were three big things that happened to the news business that would change it uh, forever. The first one was the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. And this was, of course, brought in 
first by CNN. The uh, original 24-hour broadcast began in 1981 and 1982. Uh, instead of there being one newspaper that would come out every morning, or in some cases, two newspapers. They had an evening edition or two news broadcasts was standard for most uh, news outlets. You might have an evening news show and an 11 o'clock news show. In some cases, you had a morning show as well. But you were only making content a few times a day at the very most. The 24-hour news cycle changed all that. And even though CNN's original concept was just repeating loops of half-hour news broadcasts that maybe would change two or three times a day, eventually it evolved to become a continuous uh, live program that uh, broadcasted ongoing events. And this format put enormous stress on uh, news companies and uh, people uh, at the reporter's level, at the reporting level, because we now had to create content uh, at a pace that we never had to before. And this was a purely logistical problem. You just could not make enough carefully reported content to fill every hour of every day. And news companies scrambled to figure out what they could put on television or what they could put on the wires to fill all that space. And one type of story that they quickly figured out worked quite well was to just put something visually interesting on screen and have reporters talk over it. Uh, and of course, you're, anybody who's watched the news is familiar with this. You might have a hurricane in the background, a uh, classic cliche story was a baby down a well. In Los Angeles, they used the car chase quite a lot, a hostage situation, uh, the the Kursk submarine, which sank to the bottom of the ocean. Um, all of these things were uh, great visual live news stories. And all you really needed to have was a person commenting on what was happening in the background. War was very useful in this respect from a commercial point of view. Uh, if you just had an anchor person talking over visual images of explosions in the background, this garnered enormous ratings. And that's why the first Gulf War in Iraq uh, became the first truly uh, 24-hour news story. But uh, there was only so much live uh, breaking news content you could create. You had to have something that was more scripted and more dependable. And the other uh, content that networks figured out that they could do that was very easy to make was just to put two people on a set together and have them argue about something. And this the original shows that uh, used this format were shows like the McLaughlin Report on PBS, uh, but the most famous, of course, was Crossfire, which began as an NBC radio program and moved to CNN. And this was a show that simplified politics for audiences. There were only two ideas shown. There was from the left and from the right. And um, basically what they would do it was they would uh, have these two combatants on screen, an issue would be tossed between them, and you would just have two people like Pat Buchanan and Michael Kinsley arguing about something or tussling about a subject for a half an hour or so. And in between that argument, you would have maybe three or four blocks of ads. And this was very, very successful television. Uh, and so I just want to introduce the idea that A, News companies needed to generate lots and lots of comp content, and B, they figured out quite early on that arguing uh, and intellectual conflict 
was a very, very uh, profitable and productive uh, format that they could use. And they tended to, they experimented quite a lot with, the, with that idea. The second major change was the uh, introduction of the internet. And there were, there were a number of things that this did to the news business. Uh, most people don't understand that uh, newspapers and TV stations uh, for decades had almost guaranteed profits thanks to inherent distribution advantages. Newspapers, if you were a local uh, daily newspaper like the Boston Globe or the, uh, the Dallas Morning News or the New York Times, Washington Post, those regional newspapers had their own distribution routes, their own trucks, their own distribution points, their own paper kids. If you were a business in that area and you wanted to put up a want ad or you wanted to advertise your product, the local newspaper was really the only show in town. So newspapers could charge enormous sums of money for those sorts of ads. One advertisements uh, single-handedly supported newspapers for generations and the internet really overnight destroyed that entire revenue base. Meanwhile, broadcast TV and radio stations, these were scarcity businesses. There were only so many licenses for each market. So a television station, there were maybe two or three in each market. Uh, radio stations, there were only so many on the dial. And so there was a very, very limited amount of broadcast commercial space. And that space was extremely valuable. And, and essentially, the stations could charge whatever they wanted for that airtime. As one former newspaper owner, uh, newspaper owner put it to me, uh, these businesses, it was, they were essentially printing presses. It was almost impossible not to make money before the internet came along. The internet really essentially overnight eliminated distribution as part of the uh, commercial formula of the news business. Uh, worse, it introduced a whole torrent of new content that news companies now had to uh, compete with. They were now not only competing with each other, but with millions of independent voices. If you were a local TV news station, you weren't just competing with other news shows, but also with sites full of cat videos or Sasquatch uh, information or a thousand other things and sports sites and blogs. And so what I want to stress is that this went from a business where the money was incredibly easy to being a business where the money was incredibly hard to make. And suddenly there was all this financial pressure that had never existed before. And this prompted the third uh, change in the business, which involved introducing the use of political slant as a money-making strategy. In the uh, 60s and 70s uh, and the early 80s, there began to be a new forms of talk radio that were introduced. Um, in places like New York, there were disc jockeys, people like Alan Burke and Bob Grant, and these were afternoon shows for the most part that were hunting big drive time audiences that tended to be working to middle class men. Uh, and these radio shows, which eventually evolved into to the shows that we're all familiar with now, like Rush Limbaugh type shows or Sean Hannity shows, um, these shows specifically targeted one political demographic and they were enormously uh, profitable at these radio stations. But it wasn't until the late 80s 
when um, under uh, in the Reagan administration, the fairness doctrine was eliminated, which um, basically uh, eliminated the mandate to provide some kind of balance and news programming for stations that were using the public airwaves. And that combined with all these new economic pressures that I was talking about previously uh, forced even big television stations and major newspapers to start thinking about the idea of using this um, proven bankable strategy of using political slant as a way to make money because they were now desperate in ways that they were not before. And the first company that really took advantage of this was Fox. Fox um, with their uh, famous news chair, Roger Ailes, in the early 90s, they, they changed the strategy of modern network news. Again, for decades, ABC, CBS, and NBC had all gone after essentially the same audience and had competed mostly with each other. Fox decided that they were not going to go after the whole audience, but they were instead going to identify uh, a demographic. And it was largely that same demographic that those conservative radio shows were going after, but it was slightly different. Um, it, Roger Ailes famously described Fox's audience as 55 to dead. Uh, and he, they decided to go after an older, uh, conservative, largely suburban and rural audience. And um, they essentially settled on a new formula and rather than try to corral an increasingly splintering uh, news audience as the internet was atomizing the entire information landscape, um, they decided to just pick this one demographic and try to dominate it. And what they did is they just essentially fed that demographic streams of news stories that they thought would reinforce uh, the, and validate the opinions that that older conservative demographic had. They tended to pick stories that uh, suggested that America was being, um, was under attack, was being overrun by contagious forces. They did a lot of stories about immigrants and minorities and crime. Uh, these were scary to these older audiences and they became sort of addicted to the experience of turning on the television, being frightened and then watching a reassuring figure tell them how it was going to all be okay as long as they sided with this or that politician. Um, Fox really exploded to the top of the ratings with the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton story. Uh, and they really used the Clintons, um, they, they used dramatic techniques to turn into these real life people into villains. They were less like, uh, full developed balanced characters than cardboard uh, uh, sort of caricatures of, of bad guys and good guys. And the Clintons were prototypical uh, sort of conservative villains. They presented Hillary Clinton as this enemy of white picket suburban America who said that she would not bake cookies and she wasn't Tammy Wynette and didn't want to stand by her man. And they assaulted their audience with images of this threatening new lifestyle and their audiences loved it. And Fox really uh, went to number one in the late nineties and did not leave the number one spot until 
the first year of the Trump presidency, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so since that moment in the early 90s, the quote-unquote objective um, news formula uh, that the news companies that always use the Lowell Thomas formula started to recede. And with the introduction of Fox into the landscape, it began a sorting process that uh, has not stopped to this day, where more conservative audiences drifted to one side and people who had different uh, views started to choose other channels. Uh, and there were some holdouts who tried to resist this demographic splitting, uh, but the, the new style of uh, money-making became more and more pronounced over the years. And then in 2016, and I uh, was watched this firsthand because I was covering presidential campaigns by that point for Rolling Stone, uh, when Donald Trump introduced, uh, came onto the scene, that was when this phenomenon really started to explode. And I was on the campaign trail in the summer of 2015 when Trump first uh, went on the trail. And immediately uh, I started to hear reporters talk about a new dynamic that had been introduced into our business lives. There were really two things happening. The first thing that was happening was that Donald Trump was making everybody an enormous amount of money. And we just could not avoid the reality of this. If you worked at a television show uh, station and you were doing TV news, it was impossible not to notice that Donald Trump got you great ratings. And it didn't matter how you covered him, whether you covered him negatively or positively uh, or down the middle, didn't matter. As long as you put Donald Trump on screen, it got great ratings. Same if you worked in print, it didn't matter what you said about Donald Trump, but whatever you wrote about him got tons and tons of clicks. Uh, and that was absolutely true compared to any other candidate. And if you look back at the coverage from that time, it's not hard to see how this impacted editorial decisions. CNN infamously showed a picture uh, of an empty podium uh, waiting for Trump to arrive rather than show an actual candidate talking about something because the ratings were higher waiting for Trump than they were for people watching an actual can a, a different candidate speak. When people went back and looked at the numbers, they found that during the primary season, Donald Trump got about 23 times as much coverage as Bernie Sanders did uh, on television on the other side, which was fascinating because these were two very similar stories uh, strictly from an objective point of view, they were both stories about insurgent campaigns who challenged the traditional bureaucracy of an entrenched party uh, bureaucracy. And yet Trump got this overwhelmingly larger amount of coverage than Sanders did, even though they were performing similarly early in the process. And this put media companies in a pickle because there was now a problem. They didn't know how to handle this, especially once Trump won the nomination or once he locked up the nomination. Now there were all these conversations. What do we do? Do we continue taking the money? Uh, do we continue uh, bringing in all these ratings? Uh, how do we deal with this? Are we, are we responsible for giving him all this attention? Were we responsible for helping him win the nomination? Um, and is there going forward, should we cover him less? What should we do? And uh, this, the answer that most news companies settled on was actually to cover him more than they had before, 
but to change their editorial approach and to just simply add more editorializing and more negative slant. Uh, so uh, this was presented as an ethical change. Uh, Jim Rutenberg of the New York Times in the summer of 2016 wrote a piece that was very influential called Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism. And he wrote that Trump was so dangerous that the job of journalism now is no longer just to be true, but to quote, be true to readers and viewers and true to the facts in a way that will stand up to history's judgment. Uh, and essentially this meant we had to be more aggressive in covering him. Uh, he quoted uh, the Carolyn Ryan, who was the senior editor for politics at the Times at the time, who said that the proper formula for this candidate was quote, copious coverage and aggressive coverage. So just as much or more Trump, but more aggressive coverage of Trump. The Columbia Journalism Review later did a study that showed the coverage of Trump actually skyrocketed uh, and went sharply up beginning in early 2016 at precisely that moment. I, I mentioned when all of us on the trail were talking about this dilemma, this uh, a dilemma that was both a commercial dilemma and an ethical dilemma. Uh, the CJR also found that coverage of Trump became significantly less policy focused and more focused on his personality uh, as 2016 went on. And I wanna stress that I, I don't have any problem with negative coverage of Donald Trump. In fact, I wrote quite a lot of it in 2016, but this created a problem. And the problem was that this new formula uh, that we had adopted of copious coverage and aggressive coverage it fit perfectly into the commercial needs of the news business, of the corporate news business. Trump is basically the perfect modern media product. Um, and what do I mean by that? In, you know, in the post-objectivity era, once Fox uh, shot up to the top of the ratings, media companies learned that there's a consistent, dependable way to make money. And the first thing you do is you identify your audience then you relentlessly feed that audience streams of stories that validate the, your audience's belief systems. And the easiest way to attract an audience is to publish stories that prevent, that present people that your audience does not like in a neg in negative light. And Fox did this again in the 90s and 2000s, and they were introducing a regular stream of foes for their audience to digest and to think about. And this was included terrorists and criminals, uh, feminists were often presented as a as a villain. Liberals uh, during the Gulf War, the French became the villain. It was one different cast of villains after another, and this was uh, designed to scare audiences, uh, to enrage them, to agitate them, and addict them again to the experience of getting upset. When Trump arrived in the scene it was now very easy to do this, not just to conservative audiences, but to liberal audiences as well. Media companies figured out that all they had to do to consistently make money was to wave Trump at people all day long. And so the arrival of Trump uh, on the scene in 2005 coincided and has coincided with a huge surge in profitability, especially for the cable news business, uh, since 
Trump announced his run for the presidency in 2015, uh, cable news revenues are up 38%. Um, and this is a dynamic that everybody in the news business understands. Conversely, uh, when you wave a, uh, a villain at your audience and you feed it streams of stories that constantly tell them one thing and validate their negative opinion of somebody, uh, there is a, an important counter principle to that, which is that you, you, if you challenge or confuse your audience or introduce uh, a new element, once you've gone down that road, you will lose market share. And a, a case study that I like to cite about this involved the Young Turks that some folks um, uh, might be familiar with that channel. It's a sort of liberal, independent news network. Uh, and the uh, the front uh, the, the anchor person for that network, Cenk Uger, in a documentary called All Governments Lie that I was also in about the news business, he talked about how in 2008, uh, they, the Young Turks built up its audience appealing to sort of young fans of Barack Obama. And they, they surged in popularity as Obama rode all the way to the White House. And there was an enormous... Uh, upswing in audience, the more they talked about Obama's successful campaign. When they switched in 2009 to actually covering Obama's presidency, which required them occasionally to be negative about Obama, they lost a lot of market share. And they, they found that the more they talked about things like Obama's handling of the financial crisis, that this affected their financial bottom line. And to their credit, they continue to do that coverage anyway, but that is not a decision that most big corporate uh, outlets will make. In the Trump era, uh, it became possible for these big corporate outlets to avoid the problem of ever confusing or upsetting your audience at all. Really what's happened since 2016 is the news landscape is split into two different groups. There's news for people who love Trump, and that's you know, Fox and the Daily Caller and Breitbart. And then there's news for people who can't stand Trump. And that's all the other stations that you're familiar with, MSNBC in particular. And the world that's represented in these news programs now is almost exactly like Crossfire, uh, which I talked about before. Uh, you only see two different ideas. There's pro-Trump and anti-Trump. The ideas are shown to be in constant combat. There's no pretense of a hope for cooperation or, or co cooperation, and the audiences are completely, almost perfectly siloed. There was a study by the Pew Center that came out just a few weeks ago that showed that of people who identify uh, Fox as their primary news source, 93% of those people are Republicans. Uh, for MSNBC, the number is an exact mirror. It's 95% uh, Democrats. The New York Times, for the people who identify that as their primary news source, 91% of those people are Democrats. Uh, for people who call NPR their primary news source, 87% of those people are now Democrats. So basically, most news channels now are talking exclusively to one uh, set of uh, people or another. Uh, and while uh, I want to stress that as a business, the news media was headed this way a long time before Trump, but we've now arrived at a place where the sort of good morning everybody model that was geared towards delivering information to the broad mean has been switched out uh, for a new model. And I had a Facebook executive describe to me 
what that was. And in, in, in his words, he calls it audience optimized framing in which the job is less about delivering information than it is about targeting an audience, identifying an audience, and then finding content to match and reassure that audience uh, in regular fashion. And so, you know, when I entered the business in the 90s, I wasn't aware of any of this. My idea of journalism had been informed by watching my father when I was growing up. Uh, who, again, was just a, a traditional television news reporter, a terrific reporter. And when I watched him working, uh, there was no hint of any business um, issue that ever entered into his calculations. He just sort of got his assignment and did it. And at the reporter level, no one from the business suite ever comes down and tells you you have to shape your copy one way or the other in order to increase sales. It doesn't work like that. Uh, but what does happen is that uh, you learn that work in the media involves a constant uh, unspoken pressure to highlight some things over others. And you learn to recognize almost more by smell than by rational thought what is and is not a story. Uh, and in my early experience, I found that some, sometimes this involved political calculations. I, I started my career in, in uh, the former Soviet Union. And I learned early on that editors love stories about American culture triumphing in the former Soviet states. So a Kentucky Fried Chicken opening in Moscow or an Ikea or the first American uh, advised stock uh, market exchange opening or an election that was held with our, with our advice. We love stories like that, stories that were not so complimentary about the results of economic policies that Russians had instituted with our help like the loss of public health care or the loss of uh, free higher education. Um, those were not so popular and tended to get rejected. And so over time, you, you, you learn this internal processing mechanism that tells you they're going to like this, they're going to publish this, and they're not going to publish this other thing. And in books like Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, he talked about how sometimes this was a, a patriotic uh, uh, inclination that the networks wanted you to follow. So a story is about communists murdering a Polish priest, a uh, Catholic priest in Poland. That was a story that they liked. That was, those, those were what, what he called worthy victims, but an exactly analogous story that took place in the U.S. client state, uh, like El Salvador, Guatemala, um, where priests were murdered. We didn't want to do those stories. And so the same thing now goes on with these, with these different demographics, but it just depends on where you work. So if you work at Fox, you're just not going to do a, a climate change story or a police abuse story. You will do a story about corruption at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Conversely, if you work at MSNBC, you probably won't do stories about uh, problems with NAFTA or Barack Obama's drone program. Uh, negative stories about the Clintons or Hillary Clinton, but you will do stories about anything involving Trump. Uh, and this is how this internal processing mechanism goes. You start to self-select for your audience. And this is primarily a, a business issue and not so much an ethical uh, or journalistic issue. And I know this sounds obvious, but I, most people think of this as a matter of politics. And it is in some cases, some cases it doesn't involve the, the views of your editors and the people who own and, and run these organizations, but it's very much also about commerce. 
once you've established an approach, once you've identified an audience, departing from that approach and doing anything to upset the format will cost your company money. News editors know this. Uh, news directors know this. Editors know this. And the amounts of money involved are not small. You know, a company like CNN has made over a billion dollars in profits every year uh, that Trump has been in office. And there are similar numbers on the Fox side. And so there's an enormous risk here of the tail wagging the dog. Uh, news companies will make more money if they pick stories that know will make you upset. Uh, and they know any story involving Trump is going to make their uh, audience upset. And they will avoid stories that are confusing to you. Um, and they want to make sure that they can wind you up as much as they can, not just every day, but in the internet era, they, there's a commercial imperative now to do this um, every hour, every minute, really every second. It's it's a moment-to-moment -moment competition, and the only way to really compete is to keep riling people up as much as, as much as you can. They use that crossfire formula of constant combat to attract audiences and, and to keep them and addict them to this, this, uh, this experience. And this can be very damaging to people's mental health, to say nothing of what it does to society. And so uh, as a parting thought, I just want to leave you all with this idea that, um, you know, to recognize that when you watch the news, uh, most people think of this as a public service. And in some cases it is, but you, you really have to understand that it's also a consumer product, uh, very much in the same way that uh, blue jeans or cigarettes or Twinkies uh, are a news product. And there are properties that we use to sell our product in the same way that those other kinds of consumer businesses use to sell theirs. And what we've learned is that division is the thing that sells most in this current era. And you have to understand that just as cigarettes or Twinkies can be bad for you, the news can also be bad for you. It can be bad for your mental health. It can be addicting in the same way that those products are. Uh, and so please understand that, um, you know, from our point of view, we've gone from being, you know, something that was a business, but um, more in the direction of being just about delivering information to being very, very consumer oriented uh, in the current incarnation and much more about audience and demographic targeting. And so uh, to some of you, this is going to sound obvious and to others, it'll sound outrageous and you'll disagree, but I hope you'll think about it. And um, I look forward to having a discussion and answering some questions about it. So thank you very much for having me.